I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. This is one of your hosts, Kaitel, and as always joining me on the call here in LA from all the way back in our hometown of London is my co-host, Joe. We do, as per usual, have a special guest as well for today's pod, who we're both very excited to have with us. Today's guest joined up with his cousin at Arsenal in the 90s, where he would initially hold the role of assistant physiotherapist. Then in the noughties, he succeeded his cousin Gary as head of medical services for the club. And in the teens, he would help to plan and oversee the development of multi-million pound projects that would revolutionize rehabilitation and player performance at Arsenal for years to come. These days, he and his cousin have teamed up again to treat sports injuries at the Lewin Clinic, which they founded together. We welcome Colin Lewin to the United Mates Football Podcast. Colin, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the pod with us. Thanks for being our guest and how's it going, mate? All good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, cheers again for joining us. Um, Joe, it's been a while since we last recorded. Sadly, I don't think we're going to be talking much about your lot spurs today. Such a shame, I know. But how's it going, <laughs> mate? And otherwise, uh, this is your yeah your moment. Um, the floor is yours for a brief word on Tottenham in 2022 before we properly kick off the podcast. Yeah, well, I mean, the weekend was absolutely incredible. It, se- it seems we only win games in incredibly dramatic circumstances at the moment. But I mean, yeah, w- wow, what match. Um, but yeah, obviously juxtaposed with the previous week losing to Wolves and Southampton. So yeah, it's obviously, it's never boring being a Spurs fan. And um, looks like there's a bit of a top four race on between us and you. So we'll see who, um, see who pips, pips each other to the post. I mean, maybe it will just be West Ham, who knows, <laughs> or United. But um, Colin, um, as Kai was saying earlier, it's, um, it's a pleasure to have you on, um, on the podcast this evening. And when we have a guest on the podcast, we always start with an icebreaker question. Um, for the, our guests and we've got one for you so um, we've had a look at your account <laughs> Colin and we saw um, quite a cool picture it must be said actually from when you were working um, on Soccer Aid where you were sort of giving a bit of a sort of rub down to Usain Bolt I think Mo Farah's in the background but focusing specifically on Usain Bolt he um, notoriously claimed to have eaten um, loads of chicken nuggets during the um, the Beijing Olympics. I think he he claims that he ate about a thousand over the course of the game. So um Kai and I will kind of we'll, we'll we'll kind of get onto it in a moment. But what we what we want to know from you, Colin, is is there a particular food vice that you have? Maybe, maybe even, I don't know, if you want to throw any of your former players under the bus, if there were a few players that had a few <laughs> naughty food habits. But actually Kai, what we'll give Colin some time to think. What was it, what's your food vice, Kai? Mine, now living out here in the States, where in LA, I'm so close to the border to Mexico. I'm a fan of the, the Mexican food and I love nachos. I, uh, I'll kind of semi-frequently just buy a big bag of tortilla chips and way, way too much cheese that my stomach doesn't agree with. And I'll, I'll make a big thing of nachos. And recently when I moved into this apartment, I actually nearly burned it down making nachos. Maybe that was a sign that I should sort of 
give them up but it's it's it is definitely a vice of mine how about you joe i think for me i mean a bit like you say it, i don't it's not just limited to chicken nuggets unfortunately i'm a big mcdonald's fan um to, for my sins but um i'm also a big fan of popcorn <laughs> i probably eat far too much popcorn so that's probably something i need to cut down on but you know it is a good bit of salt popcorn can't go wrong with that but colin i don't know if you want to reveal a vice of yours a vice of maybe a, a former player you treated in the past but yeah what what, what are you going to go with yes i'm trying to think of the former players ones that's tricky you know trying to think of a real odd one that there's really nothing else to me everyone who's worked with me will say tea okay one on it. too much tea drink way too much of it <clears throat> and i think wandering around the training ground was too close to the kettle you have a quick cup of tea and yeah i would drink way too many in a day and used to get murders for it uh regularly but yeah players <clears throat> tricky one I mean, Alexis Sanchez used to sit with his, uh, what do you call it, Matcha? Is it Ma Ma Mate? The, like, um, Central American tea as well? Yeah, I know I get it wrong. It's, uh, yeah, and it would sit in this special, quite a nice pottery-type cup, and he would sit and drink that endlessly before training, after training. It's almost like sipping it through a straw, through these horrible-looking, stinking tea bags. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, that's one that he would... He would be one of those. But no, I'm trying to think of a real terrible one, like you said about Bolt. But no, there's nothing springing to mind. But yeah, me, tea, terrible. No worries. Well, tea for Colin. Not to body shame anyone at Arsenal, but I reckon Andre Santos probably might have had a couple of, <clears throat> couple of bad habits. Uh, he had a bit of a backside on him. Good left back. Um, but uh, yeah, maybe not peak fitness when it comes to a top-tier athlete. Otherwise, I think we should move on back to the football. And with all of our guests, we like to start out by getting a feel for what their relationship with football looked like during their childhood. So, Colin, what's maybe your earliest memory of playing or watching football? How did you fall in love with the beautiful game? Basically, what is your football origin story, so to speak? So I grew up um, in East Ham, in East London, which is, you know, half a mile from West Ham's ground. To the point where if you're playing football in the garden, in my house or my friends' houses, you know, you'd hear the cheers from the stadium. It was that close. So early memories would have been going to West Ham, probably reserves. We were never taken to the actual game a little bit <clears throat> lively at the time. But yeah, so West Ham, the early years of my life, definitely spent a lot of time going over there. Um, then I suppose I'd have been about 13, 14-ish when Gary became the lead physio at Arsenal <clears throat> and he embarked on this sabotage of how can he get us over to Arsenal more than West Ham and uh, used to go over to Arsenal a fair bit me and my dad and from there I suppose you know I wouldn't say you become a fan but when you see that many games and you end up working for the club you know I've always said to people well, I could end up being a physio at Dagenham and Redbridge for 20 odd years you'd be a fan of Dagenham and so yeah early ones will be West Ham I'm living so close to it, really. Yeah, West Ham. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I would say it's good you moved over from West Ham, but I'd probably dislike <laughs> Arsenal more than West Ham. So, you know, it is what it is with that. But um, you mentioned just then, Colin, um, your cousin Gary, who obviously um, was a physio at Arsenal as well. Um, so obviously sports medicine and physiotherapy was something you would end up pursuing as well. Was that, was that very much under the influence of your cousin Gary? How did you first become interested in that whole world of physiotherapy and sports medicine? It was when I was deciding 
I thought I wanted to go to university and I had to choose which A-levels to do. And um, Gary used to pop over now and then on a Sunday, <clears throat> come and see everyone in the family and everything else. And just sort of planted the seed, really. Why not try it? Without ever saying at any time, go into sport. Just, just enjoy it. So, I mean, physios out there would know this, but it's a very small percentage of physiotherapists end up in sports medicine. Most end up in NHS, hospital, outpatients, orthopedics, that sort of stuff. And so decided to go for that degree. Applied for it, got into the university, really enjoyed it. And the plan was never really to go into football because I didn't think I would because there's so few jobs in football and, you know, why, why would I? So the plan was always to work in a London hospital and see what happened. And then literally soon after qualifying, Gary gave me a call and said, look, there's a role come up, largely youth team and reserves in fairness. Do you want to come and help us out? The plan was originally for a year or so, but 23 years later... <laughs> <clears throat> Gary moving on, ended up with the first team within three years working with Gary. And so, yeah, from 98 onwards until 2018 was with the first team with 10 years of that being as head of medical. So, yeah, weird. <clears throat> Only plan to go over there for a little while and then get back into the city and do your rotations in the hospitals, but that's not how it worked out. Yeah, it's certainly funny how things work out. In life. <clears throat> yeah, and it sounds like it worked out pretty well for you in that sense. But um, let's just... Yeah, I suppose talk about the start of um, your time at Arsenal. I know it was in 1995 and it sounds like for the first few years you were more involved in the sort of the reserve and academy teams. But obviously at that time when you joined Arsenal in 1995, certainly from a senior team perspective, you know, Arsenal were kind of known for the Tuesday club and the players were known for going out a lot and maybe sometimes fitness wouldn't be at the top of the agenda for the club. But from a kind of, um, I don't know, sports medicine, physiotherapy side of things, what was, what was the club's attitude towards that when you first joined? Um, I mean, obviously, Gary was leading that. That's Gary calling me now. Let me get rid of him. <laughs> so Gary was leading that at the time, and it, it had a good reputation. Um, things were being done well. The facility wasn't great, but neither was anyone's really at the time. It's, it's only really in the last 25 years or so, these training grounds have just gone boom and become the magnificent facilities they are with the great pitches and everything else. So, yeah, I think it was mid-90s was a time where things were being done fairly traditionally. Training, most clubs were training the Monday, Tuesday, having the Wednesday off, training Thursday, Friday, playing on the Saturday, <clears throat> maybe the Sunday because of the Premier League had just kicked off a few years earlier. But no, it was get the basics right, really. And when you think it was just Gary at the time, working with the entire first team squad, me lending a hand when I could, <clears throat> um, but dealing with the the young lads in the reserves, and I might be away at a reserve game or something like that. So the therapist-to-player ratio at that time was pretty average. As in that, it, you could argue it was Gary and 20 players, with me mucking in where I could for that first year or so. Um, so, yeah, it was basics done well, I would say. And it, it's more recently that the numbers have gone greater, where the therapist-player ratio is now so much better, healthier. Yeah, I mean, when you think of things these days, you think of 
Well, as as you'll know, Gary, with your team, you had at Arsenal, but you think of you know num- high numbers of people working in a in a sort of sports medicine team that all have different roles. But it sounds like yeah, back in those <laughs> days when you started, it was obviously a very very different beast back then. But um, you've obviously mentioned that Gary was kind of in in control of things from that side when you started. But sort of I guess fairly early on in your time at Arsenal. Rioc would leave and Arsene Wenger would turn up. And I guess for those first couple of years, again, you would have still been focusing more on the, the reserve side of things and the academy side of things. But when Arsene Wenger turned up at Arsenal, did um did he sort of spend quite a lot of time with Gary and yourself? Was there was there any kind of input from him on how things would work? Did he did he take a keen interest in that side of things? Yeah, how, how did it work when Wenger turned up? Yeah, there's a lot of questions here. There's, um, yeah, he he was showing a keen interest. I think fairly early on, he saw the facilities were a bit limited. Um, he was a little bit surprised that the owners of the facility were University College London, UCL, and they had games on a Wednesday afternoon there and often stuff going on on a Sunday, which meant Arsenal were second best because we were renting it from them. So we were kicked out of that training ground one o'clock every Wednesday and he couldn't believe that, understandably. So there were a few things he had to realise when he first got there around some of the rules and traditions that were in place. But yeah, he was very keen to see what we were doing, why we were doing it. Um, The transition from injured to field rehab, back to training. Um, He was very keen that they were in a better position when they started training after they were injured. I think traditionally they got back to a level where they were good enough to train they can go back into training to get their fitness and then be available. Whereas Arsenal was very keen, I think, to to work with them pre-training to make sure that when they were trained, when they joined the training group, they were at a much higher level than what had been traditionally been done before. But again, he, he wasn't demanding, as he wasn't shouting and screaming about anything. It was just conversations over lunch, conversations on a team bus. And he put his points across and we adapted to what he wanted, like anyone would, I think. Was that the first yeah. part of the question? Yeah, no, I think that, yeah, no, that that was definitely the the part. Really, it was just um, it was just interesting. Obviously, Wenger when he when he joined Arsenal, he was known for changing a lot of things, attitudes, and systems in the club. It was just interesting to find out from from your perspective and the part you were involved in. He did keep training um, short and sharp. There were no long, laborious training sessions. He did keep it short and sharp. Everything was on the clock. <clears throat> I've heard Gary talk about this on a previous podcast, and it was a little bit more of a warm-up. There was a bit more stretching at the end of training or at least a relaxation-type warm-down. But he kept the training part of it short and sweet, which some of the players weren't traditionally aware of um, or used to. So... I think that worked well. And then I think when you hear the Lee Dixons of the world and Tony Adams and Steve Bowl talk about Wenger prolonging their career, I think that's a big part of it. The volume of training did come down a little bit. It's interesting to hear the evolution of the kind of attention um, to, to detail with regards to fitness under Wenger. And obviously things have progressed since then. And it's even a unique kind of circumstance recently with COVID and games coming thick and fast and it must be even a new minefield for for as far as like the fitness side of things managing the players um so i guess it, it never stops as, as as far as pushing forwards and, and getting these guys as ready as they can be for these big games but sticking with similar subject down the years 
Um, Arsenal have been a bit bemoaned for having a lot of injuries to important first team players. Uh, at times, I'd say in particular during the Wenger era, it seemed like often the physio team, including the likes of yourself and your cousin Gary, were kind of scapegoated for these injuries, or at the very least kind of the club as a whole in terms of their preparation. But from your perspective, Colm, sort of what, what came first in that regard, the chicken or the egg? Were you, were you aware of any medical practices or training methods that might have been setting the players up for injury? And, and how did this quite sort of publicized narrative resonate within the Arsenal medical team at the time? What did you make of people talking about it like this? I mean, I think I've discussed this before. It's uh, It was a really strange thing that we were, I mean, basic statistics. If you're a Stoke or a Wigan and you're playing 40 games a year, as in 38 league and going out of cups early. I'm being a bit harsh, but let's say you're playing 40 games a year versus Arsenal's <clears throat> and Man United's at the time, 55, maybe even 60. You're going to get probably 50% more injuries. Actually, the stats say you should get more. There's some studies done around three games a week versus two games a week and how many injuries you should get. All things being equal. And so we knew that we were going to get more because we were in Europe, whereas a lot of clubs in that division weren't in Europe. So, of course, we're going to get more. The second thing was there's no official audit. There's never been a Premier League audit. So all this idea that Arsenal get more injuries and we can get none is all hearsay. It's all reported. It's all journalism. And it's all run on various websites that rely on rumour and newspaper articles to publish their so-called league tables of injury, which most of which is just really poor and sometimes very wrong. Um, sounds like I'm being a bit defensive, doesn't it? But we, we had to live with this for a, a little while. The other thing as well was it published injuries around players that people would know. So our number 31 year, our 30th best known player was Manny Frimpong who got injured and suddenly appeared on this league table as our seventh injury at the time. And we were saying, no one even knows who Stoke's 30th player is. No one even knows who Wigan's 30th player is. If he got injured today, you wouldn't know. So it wouldn't go on the league table. And so it was also a horrible, you know, for the stats wise, any statisticians out there would be thinking, this is just awful data. But every year, surprise, surprise, teams that are in Europe, which at that time was mostly Arsenal, Man United, give or take one or two others, were top every year of the injury list. Man United fans complain about all the time they've got players injured. Arsenal fans at the time were complaining they had a lot of players injured. And some years they were dead right, by the way. But it was a horrible set of stats that were badly compiled with bad data based on rumours. And so, yeah, it was quite tricky. But in the end, we ended up just ignoring it because we knew the truth. We look at the league table some mornings, there'd be eight injured players on the Arsenal list. And we knew five were training. But who do I call to get that data taken down? It's, it's nuts. So, yeah, we just ended up putting up with it. And when we said to Arsenal a couple of times about it, he said, why are you worried? What do you care about what, what people are out there are saying? Why do you care about how many injuries on a league table on a website? Relax. And I suppose he was right, but it did used to irritate us because our reputation to a level was being dragged through the mud. Quite why you never blame a physio for the number of injuries is beyond me. I do always say that don't complain at the ambulance men for the number of crashes on the M1. So it's, it was a strange thing that physios were getting stick 
Now, if we ever delayed a comeback or a rehab pathway was taking too long or players were breaking down with the same injuries, then yes, that's down to us. And we took that criticism when it happened, understandably. Didn't happen that often, but you know, you can't have it every every way you like. So yeah, you can see I've rehearsed that, can't you? You can see I've had this conversation many times before. No, well said. I mean, it sounds like the club was that much more under the microscope than plenty of the other ones, as you mentioned, and then also the sort of misinformation that was being publicized online or or in newspapers, like you said as well. Good point about Frimpong. Shame with his injuries, but yeah. He is, mm. at the end of the day, was a fringe player sort of at his peak in terms of his Arsenal career. But yeah, he was that much more in the public eye than uh, maybe yeah, a Stoke fringe player. Because we had a bigger squad. Which I guess balances out at the end of the day with the injuries. And like you said, the extra games, you need the bigger squad um, to, to, to kind of get through that. But you, you also implemented the research and development arm to the medical team during your time at Arsenal and you oversaw the construction of the new 17 million pound player performance center uh, during your time with the club. Now that you're not working for Arsenal anymore and given that you kind of helped plant the seeds for the club's medium to long-term future, as far as the medical side of things, how proud are you of what the club can now provide for the players? And in your opinion, where does Arsenal stand in terms of high performing medical teams in the world of football? Yeah, the R&D department, let's go with that one first. You might need to remind me of these questions. No uh, worries. The R&D, uh, R&D was sitting with a fellow called Alan McCall in about 2013, 14. He was um, a Scottish fellow working for Lille in France. And he worked at Celtic previously and a couple of other places. And he came over and was showing us a database of some of the latest research in different areas, in training, uh, in medical, in rehab and he showed me this database and it was an enormous database of the current research and everything that was going on and some other research activities that Lil were involved in and I remember seeing this big database and saying to him so what is that last year's database and he said no no that's last month's and there must have been 70 research papers on it that they'd managed to dig out summarize and make break it down into bite-sized chunks that the medical team could then have a look at and keep themselves up to date without having to trawl through hundreds and hundreds of pages and journals. And I remember thinking later that day, we need to do that. We need to have that fellow, really. And so with Arsenal's back in and the club's back in, we managed to go and get Alan from Lille and convince him to come and work for us with part of his remit being to give us that database, keep everyone there up to date on the real top-end latest research. And in the background, set up a research and development arm for lots of different reasons. Um, we used to get two emails a week from companies saying, we've got a great new product for your team. This will really help you. This will stop injuries. This is a great vitamin. This is a great machine laser you can use on your players. You can imagine some of the rubbish we got. And we used to call it the black magic file. And so Alan's job at the end of every month was to go through the black magic file, research each one, and decide which ones are worth following up on because you wouldn't want to miss one. The majority were awful, but you wouldn't want to miss one. So that was the research and development arm, and that's still ongoing now. So Alan's still doing a great job, and yeah, I am proud of that. That wasn't just me setting it up, it was uh, the doctor as well. So that's the R&D. Um, the £17 million player performance centre was a, 
a huge uh, decision by the club to build a new facility. Great new big gym. You've probably seen it yourselves. Um, loads more offices and just, just a really good space. Changing rooms for the academy boys. Lots of new stuff went into this building. I would say I was part of it. Des Ryan would have been the main driver behind that, along with the academy director at the time. Shad Forsyth was involved, Gary O'Driscoll. And meeting after meeting after meeting about getting it right. And to go to those initial meetings and then two years later to see what you'd put in place was unbelievable. I mean, Sean O'Connor was a training ground manager then, still is now. And the stress he would have gone through over that two years to get that building up and looking as magnificent as it does now was a testament to him and everyone else involved in it. So, yeah, I'm proud of that. Go on, remind me. No, you've, you've covered it all. I think, though, it's fascinating to hear about sort of where the French game, in, or at least in particular Lille, were at the time. We previously spoke to Ricky Hill, um, the Luton Town in England kind of legend, and he, at a certain point in his career, went over to La Havre, and he told us as well that his fitness was superior, and that was, you know, even prior to the time that you're talking about. So it sounds like England might have been one or two or even more steps behind the French game um, as far as perspective of kind of fitness. Um, otherwise, you mentioned the Black Magic file. I wonder if the horse placenta that ended up on Robin Van Persie's uh, ankle might have been something that came out of that Black Magic file. Um, yeah, that pre-Allen, I'm afraid. And we get much of a chance to research that. It was just dropped on us and he said he'd like to go and try it. That was tricky. That was a difficult time because obviously guess what, it didn't work because his ankle was significantly injured well beyond what horse placenta could repair. And, uh, yeah, it got a good headline, didn't it, though? Dobbin Van Persie was always a good one. <laughs> yeah, God, yeah, I remember that. Um, yeah, shame it didn't properly work. You know, it's good to try different No, it's not, it's not good to try. It, uh, really it, wasn't, not? it really wasn't good to try, but sometimes you have to uh, succumb to people willing to try anything, and if it waste 24 hours then then so be it and I think Robin went on to have significant surgery to that ankle and recovered very well I don't think another player went back for that treatment so well at least and I suppose the positive now hopefully no one else will use that treatment again and that can be one ruled off for ankle injuries um at least but um I'll just we have a couple of questions now sort of about the role of a physio within football um Colin and I guess this this one relates to working with players that potentially have had long-term injuries. So when a player has a long-term injury, I imagine as a physio, you spend a lot of time with them in the treatment room. And obviously, if a player's been injured for a long time, not just from a kind of, I don't know, physical standpoint, it can be difficult, but from a mental standpoint, if you're out of the game for a long time, presumably that can be tough for players too. So I was just interested um, from, from the physio's point of view, at what, at what point does your role kind of step beyond just treating an injury and having to sort of help people on a, on a human level? Do you ever kind of have to become almost like a, I don't know, like a therapist is the right word, but yeah, I guess at what point do you really have to step in and just almost raise the spirits of the player as well as bring them back to full fitness? Yeah, I think that's part of everyone's job. I think sometimes football managers, football coaches, Strength and conditioning coaches, doctors, massage therapists, hugely underrated on that side, um, play an important role. You can imagine these players going through difficult times when they know they're going to be out nine months to a year sometimes with 
with injuries. And I think as long as you're setting targets short term for them, you can sometimes take their eye off the board the longer term long path that's in front of them. Uh, yeah, I think almost every day you're playing the role of, yeah, I'm not sure therapist is the right word, but you know, agony aren't not the right word either, but you're a pair of ears really listening to what they've got to say. And I think the important thing, and most clubs will be doing this anyway, is that you change the face with them sometimes. They don't want to see my face every single day, seven days a week. Um, I think a well-placed day off is important. And I think we also used to change the um, the scenery a little bit. We'd sometimes send them away for a rehab break. I'm sure you've heard about these sort of things. And we had quite a nice little network of places around Europe and, and further where sometimes we could get a player out just for a week. Sometimes a physio would go with them, sometimes not, if it was a trusted place. Um, and I think that was also important. So I think it's keeping them focused on the short-term goals is massive, changing the scenery, and every now and then speaking to the coach and the manager to remind them to go and have a chat with the player, just so they know that they're still in their ideas and their plans and they're not forgotten, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I do know what you mean. And obviously that I think that's interesting, that point of, you know, keeping things interesting, changing the scenery up, sending them off sometimes to different places just to kind of yeah, keep keep things interesting and not yeah, not have them sort of stuck in the, the same room every day with the same people. But um it was interesting you made a point, Colin, about kind of also speaking to the manager and the coaches, because my next question was more about I guess the debate about when a player is match fit. So presumably during your time at Arsenal, there have been situations where players have been injured for a bit perhaps and big games are coming up where the coaching staff will want players to play. But perhaps there might be times when your instinct is that they're not fully fit. I mean, when it when it came down to those... What, what, I guess my question is, was, was there ever debates about if you could if Vega could start a player or not, ultimately would, would the final say so be with you? How did that, how did that conversation work when a player was kind of on the brink of fitness before a big game? Well, I think the first thing to say is that it would happen very regularly. This wasn't a one in a season, one every five years conversation. This was very regular. Um, I think the wisdom of the crowd is important. The physio and the doctor's view were obviously very, very key. The player's view is also really important. Everyone in the world could be telling the player he's ready. If he doesn't feel he's ready, then that'd be a bit silly to throw him back in. Um, the manager's important, obviously. Coaches have an input. The fitness coach who is doing the end stage rehab with him will also have a view, a very important view. And because we have morning meetings every day, everyone's ducks are always in a row. We always knew what was coming our way. We always knew what the group decision was going to be. We always had one voice where possible. And we'd have our arguments and discussions behind closed doors. And then when we left that room, we'd all present this one view. Often we all did agree anyway, but not always. So can I think of one time where Arson said, I don't care what you say, he's playing. Not really. Not really, but there'd always be a big discussion about it because all we are really is gamblers as physios and doctors and medical teams at clubs. All we are is risk analyzers. So we'll just present the risk analysis of that player playing on Saturday. 
but by then he'd have trained for a few days anyway. So everyone's attitude to that risk will be a bit informed. The player will be informed. He's trained a couple of days for, at a good level. The manager's seen him train. The fitness coach has watched him train. We've got all the GPS data we need. That often helps us, or informs our decision, certainly. So, yeah, it's, it's multifaceted, really. But I don't think it was ever a straight yes or no. He can play, he can't play. It was always risk analysis, joint decisions. And did we get them all right? Probably not. Well, no, nobody ever gets everything right. No. But moving on from uh, kind of the pre-match prep and um, fitness to the actual match day it, itself. And of course, the players' careers and major moments are you know played out on camera week in, week out for all of us to, to see. But the majority of your work and the other physios' work does typically go on behind the scenes. Having said that, certain big injuries kind of end up becoming a part of the TV spectacle as well, whether we like it or not. And that will invariably involve the physios. For instance, when Aaron Ramsey broke his leg, you were on the pitch at the Britannia providing the crucial immediate medical help. What, what are those experiences like for you? Are you able to block everything going on around you out in those moments? And I guess, how, again, I'm, I'm going to double up on the question here, but how do you tend to, tend to reflect on these major incidents that you've been involved in? Um, yeah, I think you do go back to your training. I know it's a cliche, but you do. You get to the pitch. You can see it's serious before you've even got there with the number of players waving their arms. And when a referee's waving his arms then you do know it's something fairly significant before you even got there. So you, you can be often be on your walkie-talkie calling the cavalry before you're even there sometimes because you, you can just tell that something's serious. So you've got paramedics behind you at any ground, home and away. Um, you've got a doctor there. You've got all the gases you need and everything else. So you call the cavalry fairly early if it's fairly clear it's a significant injury. But you go back to your training and, yeah, you do block everything out. You go back to what you're supposed to do. Doctors there behind me within seconds. And we go back to what we've got to do is look after the player, immobilise him, get onto the ambulance and then deal with phase two of the injury. Um, and there's been a few of them. I've been not fortunate enough, that's the wrong word, unfortunate enough to see a few um, nasty ones. As the Gary Lewin, you speak to any physio on here, you're gonna, everyone's going to reflect on a nasty one they've seen. And yeah, you do think about it. You do go back and assess yourself. Did I do everything right? You can watch replays. Should I have done that? Should I have done that? Did I get that on properly? And I think all the physios in the Premier League and below, but the Premier League is a certain standard uh, called ATMIF, where every two, three, every three years, there's a, a big two-day course where you're really put under pressure for that two days. And there's a refresher course of one day every year where we are trained to deal with the weird and wonderful. And so that's been brilliantly done by the Premier League and the medical team behind that since about, well, it started off with Petr Cech's injury, actually. That's what pushed it to come to the level it's at now. I think it was around mid-2000s, if I'm guessing. But yeah, you look back and reflect on what you could have done better, but you, you get a chance to see replays. And when we go on these courses, they often use replays of injuries with permission um, so that we can all learn from other people's, hopefully, minor mistakes. It's good to know that, likewise, as the players are you know preparing for their big moments, you, you also have these kind of crash courses occasionally to sort of refresh um, your 
focus on when the time comes being able to act accordingly and a bit of a related question it's a bit of a weird one um too though for you Colin but obviously as football fans we're all we're all armchair pundits when it comes to the players decision making and how they perform on the pitch but from a medical team perspective have you ever found yourself watching a game an injury perhaps happens and then you see the manner in which another club's physios or even occasionally like you said the paramedics or the ambulance services are responding to the injuries and you kind of become critical of what you're seeing do you ever think like I would have done this instead or you're seeing them you're like oh I wouldn't be doing that yeah maybe not at the stadium I don't I can't remember a time where I've ever sat at the stadium and watched and thought what on earth are they doing really nothing springs to mind there but watching TV sometimes as you say there it's always easy to be sat in the armchair watching what's going on you don't know what's gone on before it you don't know what's going on in their ear you don't know what the player's saying to them and so yeah often you do think I'm not sure I've done it that way but until you're there in it you don't know what's being said and it's really hard to be critical because you know what they're going through and you know what a difficult situation it is sometimes especially around concussion it's uh, not an easy thing to deal with um, because of the pressures from coaches and managers which I agree is better now but it's an awful thing to deal with because sometimes you're trying to get a player off the pitch now when they're injured they're agreeing with you I know I can't carry on. Let's get me off the pitch. Concussion's a tricky one where you're telling players you're coming off and they're looking at you like you're an idiot. What do you mean I'm coming off? I'm fine. We had Hector Bellerin at Chelsea. Um, <clears throat> don't know, eight years ago, I suppose. And he'd been hit on the head hard as Chelsea had scored, actually. And he was sat on the pitch and Petr Cech was saying to me, it was a hard one, it was a hard one. He really got hit hard in the side of the head. And Hector was refusing to believe anything had happened. And, you know, you ask a few questions, you try and get an idea of what the state of the player is. You've got the doctor on the bench watching a replay as quick as he can to get in my ear to tell me what's happened. And it wasn't until we asked Hector what the score was that I saw him sneakily take a look at the scoreboard to check it out. And so he realised that he didn't know the score. And, you know, suddenly he's realising he has to come off. But that's the hardest thing. So, yeah, it, it's hard to judge people sat in an armchair because it's not an easy decision. And concussion is really not an easy one. Like you said, yeah, it might, it's one you of know. those things where who <clears throat> knows. knows. Yeah. Um, but I suppose on a more, well, the first part's not positive, but obviously, look, you've, you've, you've been involved in the rehabilitation of a lot of players that have suffered Serious injuries, minor injuries, you name it, I'm sure you've you've seen it. Um, but is there over the course of your career, well, I suppose at Arsenal, is there is there one recovery process that you're most proud of? And if so, why? Is there was there a particular player that something happened which is really, you know, on a personal level quite satisfying that you were able to get them back to a level which potentially looked quite tricky from the outset? Probably Eduardo. Um that was the worst injury I've ever seen. Um, horrible open ankle injury. And on that day in Birmingham, to think that he will play again was was quite a thought. It was a, a real nasty injury. <clears throat> so compared to where we saw him in that hospital that day, to then come back and play for the reserves, I think about eight months later. I think, might have got that wrong, but I think it was about eight months later. 
playing for the reserves. Um, and then getting back in the first team, and I think he scored in one of the League Cup games. But yeah, it was great because of what he'd been through. Such a lovely fella. Um, put all the hours in. Um, worked right through his summer. Missed the crucial uh, Euros with Croatia. Euros? Yeah, Euros. <clears throat> so he'd, he'd missed the rest of that season. He had missed his Euros and everything else. For him to get back and contribute to the team and even get back on the football pitch was very satisfying. A lot of people put a lot of hard work into that. Um, him being the most hard working out of all of it. So yeah, that was that was good to see him get back. And okay, we're all sad to see him go, but for him to be sold to Shakhtar Donetsk for eight ten million just shows what a level that he got back to. So everyone involved in that process from the paramedics at Birmingham, the surgeon in Birmingham, to everyone else. All very proud. <clears throat> yeah, he even managed to score against Arsenal a couple of times for Shakhtar after he made that move in the in the Champions League. Um, again, just a, a sign of the level that he was able to get back to playing at. Um, a crazy day at, at Birmingham, very emotional one, obviously. I think we all remember Galas at the end of that match. It was just a draining afternoon and kind of put pay to what was looking like quite a promising title um, challenge from Arsenal as well um, on that back, season. I went, back, <clears throat> I went back to the stadium after the game. Um, the bus had gone. And I think I was waiting for someone to pick me up. And as I walked down the dressing room area to go and get my bag back from the dressing room, Philip Senderos was sat in the drug testing room because um, he couldn't pee. <laughs> so the bus had left him behind because um, they couldn't wait for him to pee. So me and him got in the same car home and yeah, in a two hour journey, not a lot was said because that, that was a, that was a tough day. Yeah. Very somber time for the club, but thanks to the likes of your, yourself and obviously Eduardo as a resilient individual um, himself as well. It was, it was able to, to salvage his career. With- yeah, the doctors, you, you, doctors, yeah. coaches, you know, all of them. Yeah. Um, conversely, on the flip side, I suppose, what was maybe the most disappointing injury saga that you were involved <laughs> in? There's obviously been a lot of high profile ones at Arsenal, like, you know, Ramsey, Eduardo, as you mentioned, um, Cazorla, Wilshire, Diaby, Van Persie, and even Thomas Rosicki. Most of these guys ended up being able to play for the club uh, to some capacity eventually uh, again, but was it maybe one of these guys who struggled the most um, in your time with the club or maybe someone I haven't mentioned? You'd ask this, thought you might ask it. <laughs> um, I think Abu, the Abu was probably all of our biggest disappointments. I think you've named a few tricky ones there and they were tricky, but like you say, they got back to a, a decent level eventually. Maybe Santi, not quite, but at least he's playing abroad. Um, yeah, Abu Diaby's ankle injury, which was a nasty tackle, nasty fracture dislocation, had surgery and always had trouble getting the range of movement back in the ankle. The dorsiflexion movement, which is sort of that movement, bringing your toes up. He never quite got the range back and <clears throat> we knew it would be a bit of a problem. We couldn't get, quite get it back. He had further scans, he had further surgery to try and help get that range. He had the metal work taken out. Everything was tried, but we couldn't quite get that range. <coughs> and so, of course, he was getting back, but within a few training sessions or sometimes a few games, he was breaking down. And we all knew what a talent he was before that injury. Then to watch him over the subsequent couple of years just not quite get there. 
he played a couple of 45 minutes here and there, played a couple of hours here and there, but he never really got back into the groove that we knew he needed to, to be the player that we all knew he was. So, again, worked as hard as he could. Everyone's input, physios here, physios abroad. A French osteopath used to come over. He was seeing him once a week anyway. And everyone who saw him said the same thing. He's doing okay, but we can't quite get that range back. And it's something we never really achieved. And so, yeah, that was a real disappointment because we sort of knew what we had to do, but couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean, that that must be incredibly frustrating as a physio, <clears throat> obviously, even though I'm a Spurs fan, but... I could recognise that he was a he was a fantastic player. That yeah, and you know who knows what could have happened had he not suffered some of those injuries. But at least I suppose he he still got to have somewhat of a career. But yeah, we'll never know what could have been um, had that. In, well, it's not even about had that injury ever happened. Had maybe the the ankle healed a bit better. But um, <coughs> just one final question, kind of on injuries per se. And you mentioned earlier, kind of the weird and the wonderful side of things. So obviously the basically were, were there ever any injuries that players had that perhaps they happened not on the football pitch and they they're not a serious injury but they didn't want the coaching staff to know about it was what was the most bizarre injury you ever had to treat well any any funny stories of minor injuries that you had to cover up for the the players as good or any anything along those lines that's frustrating because i can't think of one as you answer that question i'm thinking come on i think there's got to be something there <clears throat> I'm trying to think of one. I mean, we've all known the stories of goalkeepers leaning forwards to get remote controls and having back problems. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Pressing controlling jars of mayonnaise out the fridge and hurting his toe and stuff like that. We didn't have that many. I'm trying to think of anything at all. I mean, when Robin Van Persie broke his little toe, everyone does think it's only a little toe. You know, come on. And he missed a couple of months because he couldn't get his boot on. And if you can't get your boot on, you know, then you start injecting the toe with some anaesthetic to try and help him, which is a well-known treatment for that particular injury. It's not harmful. And then the toe gets a bit swollen, gets irritated. And it's just a nightmare of an injury because all it is, is a fractured little toe. But that was frustrating to try and explain to some coaches and Robin himself, you know, what's he done? He broke his little toe, he broke his pinky. And, you know, it was very frustrating to watch him miss game after game. He got back in at seven, eight weeks, I think, but way too long for such a trivial injury because he just couldn't get a boot on. We tried padding it. We tried going a size up. We tried cutting holes in the boots and nothing was doing it for him. Um, all the input from very important foot people over the world couldn't do it. So, no, it's not your funny Dave Besson controlling the jar of mayo out the fridge, but that's the only one I can think of that was weird and wonderful. But we always used to say every year we'd see one injury that we'd never seen before and we'd probably never see again. And it, it was always bang on every year. There was one. Yeah, I mean, that Cazorla one where it sounds like he almost, I mean, from depending on what you've read and who you listen to, like, potential amputation was like a, a thing that nearly came into consideration so there's definitely some some weird ones that you're not expecting I guess um if there isn't any maybe yeah amusing injury stories I know there's perhaps banned activities that we're aware of like players typically I think written into the contracts or whatnot not supposed to ride a motorcycle or not supposed to maybe go skiing or things like that are there any other 
maybe more mundane band activities that the general public wouldn't know about that behind closed doors that the players knew themselves were not allowed to get up to. Now you've got me again. You're going to cut this podcast off and I'm going to think of tons. <laughs> no, I think we all knew that. They, I think on the list, it wasn't, there was no scuba diving, I think, um, skiing, motorbike. But no, there was ever nothing ever there that you thought, wow, what's that? No, I can't think of anything there. Like maybe don't go in your kid's bouncy castle in the backyard when it's their birthday <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> yeah, no, it was. But no, I can't think of anything like that at all. <laughs> well, when you do think of it, we'll 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 get you back on for um for Colin Lewin in part two. But before we uh before we wrap things up, obviously we want to chat a bit more actually about what you're what you're up to these days and what you've been up to since um you left Arsenal. And so the Lewin Clinic that you run with your cousin Gary, what what essentially inspired you both to work independently of one specific football team like you both had previously done, either Arsenal or Gary with um with England as well. Um, was this kind of always a goal for you, Lewins, um, to, to do this project? And, and what, what makes the, the Lewin Clinic so special? Um, I don't think we'd ever really thought about it, but we both found ourselves in the summer of 2018. Um, Gary had left West Ham. We'd been for a year. Um, I was left from Arsenal. And we thought, let's just sit tight because there's going to be other bits and pieces coming up, perhaps other applications we might want to make. And we both said, look, if there's nothing suitable that we both want individually by October, let's sit and have a chat about what's next with regards to perhaps setting up a clinic. So a couple of bits and pieces came up for both of us, I think, but it wasn't quite what we wanted. And so we sat down and had that chat in October and with the help of Dick Law, who did the contracts at Arsenal, um, Arsene Wenger helped us out with a couple of bits of advice. David Dean was brilliant. We had a couple of meetings at his house because both myself and Gary's business brain perhaps wasn't where it should be if you're about to start a business with a clinic. And so we ended up having this idea that we wanted to provide a clinic, a rehab pathway, uh, you know, treatment rooms with gym that we were used to working in so that everyone whether you're an elite athlete or not, could benefit from an elite athlete's rehab pathway. Um, so really good gym, really good setup in the treatment rooms, mine and Gary's black book um, and experience, hopefully. And so that's what we set up. So we got some, I spoke to Petacek, who seemed keen to be involved financially. And because Petter got involved, that helped me get Aaron Ramsey because everyone trusts Petter. And um, from there, Mr. Ozil's agent called us. He was keen to get involved. And I've known Mesut for years, but he got his agent to make the call. And um, so then we had three, three of the players with equity in the company that enabled us to get a bit of capital to start it all up because there was an initial outlay, of course, quite a substantial amount. And so we set it up. We opened it up in October 2019 which was great unless there was a pandemic coming on March 2020. So don't start a new business four months before a pandemic will be my best advice to people. But yeah, we got out of it okay. We recovered and um, opened up again in June 2020. So here we are now, another 18 months down the line, and it's going really well. We've got another physio in there now, um, massage therapist in place, and it's growing and growing and yeah, really enjoying it. 
it's different. There's a lot of things I miss. There's a lot of things I don't miss. But yeah, on Instagram, we are at the Lewin Clinic. Twitter is at the Lewin Clinic. And the website is www.lewinclinic.co.uk. So that thank you for letting me have that little plug. Well, that, that's brilliant, Colin. We were, we were actually going to ask you all those things, so you, um, <laughs> you, you beat us to it. But I guess, yeah, just a, a final quick question. Obviously, you, you've been used to treating footballers all over the years. These days at the Lewin Clinic, does it tend to be um, athletes that turn up or can, can anybody go? I mean, what's the, what's the sort of setup there in terms of your typical client base? <clears throat> we haven't got a typical client. It's a mad mix. So we have elite athletes from lots of different sports, um, elite athletes, girlfriends, current footballers, girlfriends and mums and <laughs> lots of stuff like that. A lot of lovely footballers because I wouldn't expect an Arsenal or West Ham player to come to the clinic. They've got physios, they've got great facilities where they are. They don't need us. But some of the lower league clubs that haven't got perhaps the physios experience or the facility. So we get an awful lot of that coming in, non-league, lower league, from various sports, rugby, loads of fast bowlers, um, especially teenagers. So we've got um, affiliations with a couple of private schools and a couple of grassroots level clubs in the area. So we see an awful lot of developing athletes as well. So yet there isn't a typical patient. I've got a 70 year old knee replacement on the books. They'll walk out and then a footballer could walk in. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a strange setup, but it works and everyone seems happy with it. And uh, yeah, you never know who you're going to bump into really. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, maybe we'll get by the Lewin Clinic if you want to spot who's who's going to be turning up on a day-to-day basis. But um, um, Colin, that does bring us to the end of um this podcast. Um, I, you know, we want Kai and I want to say a massive thank you to you, and you know, we really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Um, I know you um you just plugged your um you plugged the Lewin Clinic just a second ago, but in case anyone didn't hear it the first time, I don't know if you just want to remind the listeners of the of the website and any social media handles they should have. Um, they should go to the website is www.lewinclinic.co.uk um there's lots of bits and pieces on there the instagram and twitter are at the lewin clinic i think it's on facebook as well i think um and linkedin i believe so yeah thanks for that uh, thanks again colin um when i'm back in england you might see me actually passing through uh, for uh maybe some some help on a dodgy acl surgery that i had back in the day that did not do me um do me well actually still suffering um but best of luck to you to gary to everyone involved at the lewin clinic Uh, as far as our listeners if you enjoyed this interview please do follow us wherever you like to stream your podcasts just look for united mates football podcast you can find us the same way on youtube if you feel like putting some faces to these voices don't forget to click the subscribe button while you're at it on twitter instagram and facebook we are at united mates fp so give us a follow there And for all of that content and more in one place, visit the website. That's unitedmatesfp.com. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.